This morning, we will begin a six-week sermon series through the book of Malachi. Uh, I now invite you, if you haven't already, to open your Bible and turn to Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. If you're familiar with Malachi, you know that Malachi is part of a collection of Old Testament books known as the Minor Prophets. It's a minor prophet not because uh, it's less significant or less important than any of the other prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all the other major prophets. Uh, it's been given uh, the category of minor prophets simply because it's shorter than most of the other prophets. The book length is shorter. It is also the last book in the Old Testament. Today's sermon will cover the first five verses of Malachi, and if you're using a pew Bible, you can find this passage on page 801. Just to note, we will also be in Romans 9 a whole lot this morning, so we'll be in Malachi, but then also in Romans 9. And with that, if you would, please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's holy word. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? And I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we're shattered, but we'll rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is God's word for God's people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated. And now let's pray. God, every single Sunday morning when we gather for corporate worship, we come to worship you, to delight in you. This is not about us. We are so blessed as we confess our sins to you and to one another, as we sing songs that fill our heads and our hearts with truth, as we pray prayers for one another and for others, as we hear your word read and preached. But today is about you, about you being praised and honored, about you being the delight of your people, our greatest treasure. I do pray this morning for our hearts I pray especially for those who are not in Christ, those who have not repented and trusted in Jesus alone for their salvation, that you would open their eyes to see that you and you alone are worthy of their worship, that you are worthy of everything, that you are the greatest treasure in life. You are the blessing of the gospel. Lord, I pray for those who have come that, that may have wandered, who are, who are feeling far from you this morning for whatever reason. May you renew and refresh and rebuke and strengthen and encourage your people. And I pray for those who find this day them, their hearts to be glad in you. They have come to this place ready to worship you. You are worthy to be worshipped by every single being. You're to be praised and honored. Every syllable, every, every song, you deserve it. You deserve our lives. You are holy. You are righteous. You are good. You are gracious. You are merciful and kind. And you are loving. You are awesome, God. There is so much to give you thanks for. I, I give you thanks again for another child that, that you've blessed people in this church with. I believe I'm saying her name correctly, Arabelle Eden Amundsen, another little girl. We praise you for her life, and we thank you for giving her in Jared and Dana Amundsen, parents who love you, who trust you, and who will seek to pass the gospel on to this little girl. We pray, Father, that, that you would save her, 
at an early age, that she would have a wonderful, sweet testimony of how you put her into a Christian family. You, by your providence, put her in, in a, a healthy local church that, that taught her the gospel. And I pray, Father, that she would see what we see, that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and the only hope is to trust in him and turn from sin. Lord, we give you thanks for the many other blessings that you have given us, that you've sustained our lives for another week so we can gather to worship you and praise you and serve you as your people. There's so much to be thankful for. May we, your people, may this church be marked by a heart of gratitude, of thankfulness, not just around Thanksgiving or other holidays, but all the time. For we, your people, are the people who should be the most thankful in all the world. For we have been saved by your grace and for your glory. God, we, we also pray that, that you would be with our Albanian team, that these six members of our church who we're sending to encourage and support and be a blessing to Disciples Church in Tirana would be just that, a blessing. We never want to send a team to a missionary, a church plant that, that goes and, and distracts or takes away from the ministry that they're already doing. We simply want to encourage and come alongside and I'm confident that these brothers and sisters will do just that. I pray that you bless their efforts. Of course, that you keep them safe in the midst of what we don't know all the, the details of the effects of this earthquake and how the aftershocks are and, and what's going on exactly there. But, but we know it, it's true that if you call us to go somewhere, that, that, that you will care for us and that your will will be done in our lives. It doesn't always mean that everything will be easy or comfortable or that, that we won't experience suffering or hardship, but it does mean that you're with us and you care for us and you'll use it. And so I pray for your protection over the team. We also pray for the Albanian people. It is a, a country where there's a lot of difficulty, not just spiritually, but physically. And, and with their government, there's, there's not always a great support system. And so we pray that as people uh, are picking up the pieces of their home, as, as they navigate through the, the difficulties, as there's injuries, possibly even death to, to grieve, uh, that the gospel would be especially beautiful to those who are perishing. That the church, our, our brothers and sisters and disciples church, would not only be, be safe, but they would be bold in proclaiming the gospel to those who are, who are struggling, who are suffering, who are maybe especially open to hearing about hope and good news in Christ. And now, Lord, I pray that, that your word would go forth. People have not come to hear from me. They have come to hear from you, your word. And so may I handle it correctly and rightly with wisdom and clarity. May I proclaim it and may you use it to rebuke and encourage and refresh and strengthen all for your glory and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The book of Malachi, like all of scripture, was written for us, but it was not originally written to us. Now, this doesn't mean that this Old Testament book doesn't apply to our lives. I'm convinced that it does. And I think as we make our way through it, you will be convinced that this book very much does apply to our lives. All scripture does. We're told this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So church, friends, Malachi is profitable. Malachi will be used by God to reprove us. Malachi will be used by God to correct us. Malachi will be used by God to provide us with training in righteousness so that we are better equipped, not only as individual Christians, but as a church to do the work that God has called us to do. 
And yet, because Malachi was not originally written to us, but to Israel at a specific time, for us to profit the most from it, for us to be rightly reproved by it and corrected by it and trained by it and equipped by this book, well, we need to read it in its original context in mind. That is, we will need to consider who it was written to and who wrote it. Ultimately, God is the author of all scripture, but he used human writers to give his word to his people. We need to know and think through the specific issues that it addresses in its time. And then we can rightly apply it to our lives and to the church today. If we do this, though many years separate us from Malachi's original audience, we will see that this minor prophet has a major message for today. And this should not surprise us. After all, Malachi is, as I say, after reading every time God's word, Malachi is God's word for God's people, and we are to hear it, believe it, and obey it. I don't just say that. I mean it. This is God's word for us, his people. We need to hear it and believe it and obey it. One more thing must be stated before we make our way through this passage in Malachi and the book. Not only will we be looking at the book of Malachi in its context, considering the author and the situation and the people, we will, like we do with every book, be looking at it through the lens of the gospel. Because no matter what we're studying, Genesis through Revelation, whatever chapter or verse we're unpacking, we can only rightly see it by the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't forget the good news when we work through Old Testament passages. Jesus taught us this truth when speaking to some of his disciples after his resurrection, when he said, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Church, we must not be foolish ones or slow of heart. The law and the prophets teach us about Jesus. That's Moses, the law, Moses, and the prophets. Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Malachi teach us about who? Jesus. They point us to Christ. For Jesus is Lord and Savior. He is the Son of God, God the Son. He is the one who took on flesh. He became a man. He lived a sinless life. He suffered and died a sinner's death on the cross to atone for our sins. And then three days later, he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit so that all who repent of their sin, who turn from their rebellion against God and the rejection of God's rule over their lives and by faith trust in Christ alone are forgiven of their sins. They are reconciled to God and given eternal life. How could we forget that as we make our way through Malachi? That would be silly and foolish. And so as we make our way through the Old Testament, this is hermeneutics, this is how to study the Bible, we remember the gospel. We see it through the lens of the gospel. We always remember the gospel, whether we're in the Old or the New Testament. And so as we make our way through the book of Malachi, we will consider it in its context, and we will look at it through the lens of the gospel. And to do this in these first five verses, we're going to consider the Lord's messenger, the Lord's message, and the Lord's promise. So if you're an outline person, if you want to know where we're going, how I've broken up this passage, it's the Lord's messenger, the Lord's message, and the Lord's promise. And so we begin with the Lord's messenger, who is named in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Here it's clearly laid out for us who the messenger is. Malachi is the Lord's messenger in Malachi. 
He is the prophet that the Lord chose to give this message to Israel through. This explains why this book has been given the name Malachi. Most of the the books in the Bible are either named after the author, the human author, that God used to give that book or that letter, or they're named after the person. And I struggled with a cough through first service, and I really tried to tough it out. Uh, I don't like drinking in front of people. It's just one of these, like, here, watch me drink some coffee. But for your sake, you know, pretty, pretty awesome, right? Uh, but for your sake, I think I'm going to have to stop every once in a while and drink some coffee. Not my norm, but it's better than you hearing me struggle and cough. I'm not that tough. I realize first service. Um, so, uh, back to uh, where we were. Uh, so, Malachi is the, the messenger. That's why this book has been given this name. Malachi can also be used as a proper name or as a title for someone who gives a message. And so, because of this, opinions have differed throughout church history on just who Malachi is. Is this a name or is this a title? Now, it doesn't help that there's no mention of Malachi's father or of his place of birth in the book. Oftentimes, a prophet uh, will be named and then will be given his father's name and where he was born, but we don't have it. It's not always the case, and, and here's one of the times where that's not the case. Some theologians throughout church history think that Malachi was a title given to Ezra the scribe who wrote the book of Ezra. John Kelvin held to this view. And this would mean that Ezra is the Lord's messenger in Malachi, that Ezra, uh, it's, it's like... Ezra 1 and Ezra 2. That's John Calvin and other uh, theologians had that, have had that view as well. However, most evangelical theologians and conservative scholars believe that Malachi was the actual name of the Lord's messenger. For whatever reason, we don't get background. It could have been that he came from a, a humble birth. It didn't matter to the people of that day where he came from. Here he is giving the Lord's message to the Lord's, peace, the Lord's people. Uh, this is my view. That This is the view I'm taking, that This is a man named Malachi. Now, in most things besides baptism, I tend to agree with Calvin, but but here I would differ with the great reformer. However, whoever he is, whether it's Ezra or somebody named Malachi, it doesn't change the book's message or how we are to interpret the book. Based on the content of the book, scholars generally agree that Malachi was written around the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah in the middle of the 5th century B.C., or about 430 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Part of the reason they've come to this conclusion is that so many of the specific sins that Israel is rebuked for in Malachi are sins that Israel is rebuked for in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so there seems to be an overlap of the time period. Uh, These sins include a corrupt and unfaithful priesthood, marrying pagans. So uh, the Israelites were were commanded not to marry outside of Israel, and they married outside of Israel, people that worshipped idols. Uh, the, 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 the matter of abusing the poor is also addressed, and they're not tithing, giving money to uh, care for the, the priest and provide for the temple. Other major evidence for this date includes that the temple is found in Malachi, and the temple was rebuilt around 516 BC. And here we see in Malachi, uh, enough time had passed that the priesthood had been reestablished, that took some time, and that the sacrificial system was in place. And so if you're not a history person, I love history. I love facts, working through what was going on, who who were the people. Uh, Maybe you'll just gloss over all that, but it's helpful to know these things. And so I want to start this series by giving you this background. Now, it was not an easy time to be a prophet in Israel. 
God had brought some of the Israelites back to the land that he had promised them in the covenant that he had made with them, the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel had been in exile as a consequence for repeatedly breaking the covenant. God said, if you do not keep the covenant, you will experience my discipline. And so they did experience the Lord's discipline. They were sent into exile. They uh, were under the rule of other kingdoms. And finally now, they've come back. At least a, a large group of them has come back to the promised land. But only a short time later, we find God's people once again turning from the Lord, breaking the covenant that the Lord made with them, disobeying God's law and living in sin. It's almost baffling. I mean, their ancestors, some of these people, their their grandfathers were were living images of the Lord's discipline and what happens when you don't obey obey the, the Lord. And yet here they are doing the very same thing. And so what does God do? He sends prophets, in this case, Malachi. In reality, there was never an easy time to be a prophet in Israel. A prophet's main task was to call God's people back to keeping the covenant, back to the covenant, so that they would experience the blessings that God had promised his people in the covenant if they kept the covenant and avoid the discipline of the Lord that came in the form of curses for breaking the covenant. So God made a covenant with Israel and he said, if you do these things, this is what you will experience. This is what you will have. That included the land, that included uh, joy and protection and peace, And if they broke it, then there were going to be curses. One of those curses was their exile. And so the prophet would call God's people back to keeping the covenant. The prophet was to deliver God's message to God's people, which most often consisted of this, a rebuke for sin. So the prophet comes on the scene and he says, you all, if he was from southern Israel, you all, you need to stop sinning, all right? Because if you continue to sin, this is the next step, then God's judgment awaits. And so he would call them to repent. And after calling them to repent, he would promise that God would bless them once again if they turned back to the Lord. So rebuke, repent, warning, and the promise of God's blessing. That was the the prophet's message. And as you can guess, people who were living in sin and loving it didn't like to hear prophets give this message. No matter what time, no matter what season, the, the, the results are often pretty similar. People didn't really like hearing this message from Malachi. The same is true today. Those who proclaim the gospel with passion, with clarity, unashamedly, are not often well-received. So that pattern continues. For the evangelist, for the pastor, for the Christian, if we faithfully proclaim the gospel, it will not be well-received by many. So already we're seeing a parallel to today. Prophets like Malachi often, almost always, experienced loneliness. Sometimes they were the only one who seemed to be following the Lord. It wasn't the case, but that's how they felt. They experienced rejection and persecution. Their ministry was difficult, dangerous, and discouraging. You didn't get a promotion when God called you to be a prophet. You're called to lose your life for the sake of the Lord and his people. Prophets faithfully proclaim God's word, and many of those who claim to know God would reject their message. Again, we find a parallel to our own day. Many today who profess to be Christians, to be followers of Jesus Christ, 
at the same time as doing that, live their lives contrary to the gospel. And I, I, I'm a firm believer in sanctification. That even though God justifies us in a moment, he declares us righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness, man, we, we still struggle with sin. So I'm not saying that there are people walking around who simply struggle with sin. I'm in that club. I'm in that group. I struggle with sin. I'm saying there are people who say they're Christians, people who go to church, people who go to this church, and yet everything in their life, really if you, you, you pull back the, uh, the, the reality of what they really believe, contradicts with the gospel. The same was true in Malachi's day. And it's this setting that the Lord chooses Malachi to be his messenger and to give his message to the Lord's people. Now we come to the Lord's message. Verses 2 through 4 summarize the main message in Malachi. There's much more to Malachi's message, but, but all of that will flow out of what we read here in the opening of the book, especially verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. That, that's really the main message in Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. We see here that Malachi uses the Socratic method to communicate the Lord's message to the Lord's people. Socrates was a classical Greek philosopher who used questions to challenge his students' thinking in order to expose weaknesses or contradictions in their ideas and beliefs. Instead of teaching merely by giving content through lectures, the Socratic method teaches with questions. It can be a little bit difficult if you're not used to it. Uh, there are people in our church that are very familiar with it. They use it in evangelism. They use it in teaching. And you're like, would you just give me the answer? Would you just stand up there and, and teach me something for 45 minutes and then I'll just gloss over and I'll leave and not really remember anything? That, that, that can be our mentality. Questions probe and they force us to think through what we think and why we think it. And that's the, the pattern. That's, that's how Malachi unfolds. It's a very unique book in that way. There's other areas and sections in, in Scripture where the Socratic method is used. And, and here's, here's a book that is largely using the Socratic method. Though it's relatively a short book, Malachi contains 23 questions. Malachi's Socratic approach begins, this is the pattern, it begins with a statement, it's followed by an objection, and then the answer to that objection is given by the Lord. And we see this in verses 2 through 4. The Lord's statement is, I have loved you. That's what the Lord says, that's his statement, I have loved you. And then it's followed by Israel's objection. How have you loved us? So they're objecting to that statement from the Lord. Prove it. How have you loved us, Lord? And then the Lord gives an answer in the rest of the passage. There are important questions in life that everyone needs to answer, and they need to get these answers right. Two of, if not the most important questions, are, the, are these. Is there a God? That's a huge question. Is there a God? Another question that's very important. Who made the world? Where does this come from? Why does this exist? Two foundational, fundamental, and extremely important questions for not only this life, but in the life to come. You need to get the answers to these two questions right. 
Well, the very first verse in the Bible answers these two questions. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is a God, the Bible says, and this God made the world. Everything that we see, everything that exists came from this God. It's wonderful. The very first verse of the Bible, God's word speaks to those who are seeking after him. There's a God. He made it. He made everything. He made you. But there's another extremely important question. Does this God love me? The Lord's message to his people through the prophet Malachi is, I do. I have loved you. There is nothing greater than being loved by the Lord. I know there are some wonderful things in this life. There are some wonderful things to experience, to have, to appreciate. I, I'm, I'm a Protestant. I don't think we should all become monks or nuns and live and separate ourselves from the world and not have any joy in the things that God has made. He made these things for our joy to experience them and to say, whoa, there's a God and he's good and he gave me this blessing, whether it's family or friends or a spouse or children or whatever it is, a sunny day, the birds chirping, a beautiful walk in the park. He gave it to us and so we can enjoy it. And yet all of it pales in comparison to the love that we find in God, the love that God gives to his people. No love matches or surpasses God's love. I have been loved well by many people. My wife, my parents, I think my children love me well. My church. But all of that love pales in comparison to the love that I've experienced from God. God is love, and his love is entirely pure and perfect and holy. God is the source and the definer of love. As scripture unfolds and the gospel of Jesus Christ is revealed, we come to learn from passages like Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in the New Testament, with the unpacking of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel being revealed, how would the Christians say, how would the, the Christian answer this, this, this same question? How has God loved me? They would say, the cross. I know God loves me. I'm not even going to ask that question because of the cross. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God. Do you want to know, Christian, that God loves you? You look to the cross. The cross proves it over and over and over again. God loves you. But how did God show his love to his old covenant people? To those who trusted in him and were saved by faith in the promised Messiah, but lived and died on the other side of the cross. How does God show his love for them? I would say there's, it, it's the same, but, but they don't know as much and they haven't experienced as much. The cross hasn't happened. But we find an answer in this passage. God gives an answer. The Hebrew word love translated in Malachi 1-2 as loved is in the perfect tense. This signifies a completed action, something that has been done and yet it continues to have ramifications or effects on the future. It is used in the Old Testament to refer to God's covenantal love, God's love for Israel, and God's love for individuals. Now, if you've read through the Old Testament, it's clear that God loves Israel. The Old Testament is full of examples that show God's love for Israel, that tell of how God poured out his grace and his mercy on Israel over and over and over again throughout their history, though they did not deserve it. 
though they wandered from him, though they complained about him, though they shifted and changed and wandered, not just mentally and physically, but spiritually over and over again. God says, I love you. And he shows it, he proves it over and over again. But here in Malachi, Israel is once again questioning God's love. Now it could have been because of their current struggles. Yes, a group had come back from Israel or back into the promised land in Israel, but there were still many Jews that were scattered throughout the lands. Families were still seeking to recover and work through all the change, being uprooted from a land that was not their home, but now coming to a place that was supposed to be their home that didn't feel like home. Maybe they had expectations that God had not met. Maybe God didn't even promise that he would meet them, but, but they threw these expectations on God and they're like, look, God, you're not even doing what you said you would do. Maybe they believed that God had let them down. Some things that many of us can struggle with as well. Look at the struggle I'm in. The, the difficulty, the cancer, the, the death, the loss of this. The, I don't have this career that I always wanted. I thought I'd be married by now. I thought I'd have, I'd, I'd have 12 kids. I used to joke about that. And my wife is correcting me every time I say that, so I don't joke about it anymore. Uh, I don't have 12 kids. I don't have this. I don't have that. And we say, God, could, could you really love me then? Because if you love me, you would have given me this or kept me from that suffering or that hardship or this person would still be alive. Israel's spiritual condition, their doubt is summarized in their objection to God's statement of love. They say, how have you loved us? In essence, the people wanted God to prove it, to make a case for his love. And what is God's answer to Israel's objection? What's his case? In short, it's the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. That God loved Jacob, one of their forefathers, who would later be given the name Israel by God, and that God hated Esau, Jacob's older twin brother, whose descendants were Edom. And that's why, why Malachi points to Jacob and Esau. The words love and hate in this passage can be difficult to understand. Partly because we live in a time when everybody's definition of God is love, and that means the world's definition of love rather than the biblical definition of love. And so to, to, to come across a, a a statement like this. Esau, I hated? It, 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 can, it can be difficult to wrap our minds around that. In their covenantal use, love means chosen and hate means not chosen. And that has ramifications. You might say, oh, that's easier. I'm not trying to twist scripture or get out of a difficult truth. This is a difficult truth. That God chose Jacob and that led to blessing and God did not choose Esau and that led to judgment. God's love for Jacob is shown in his choosing to enter into covenant with Jacob, and his hate for Esau is shown in his not entering into covenant with Esau. The details are recorded in Genesis 25, 21 through 26. I'll just give a summary, though. Jacob and Esau were twins, and Jacob was the younger brother. Esau was the older brother. But God went against the cultural traditions regarding the firstborn, who was to be the favored one, the chosen one, and he chose Jacob, the younger, and not Esau, the older. In Romans 9, the Apostle Paul, addressing the doctrine of election, also uses Jacob and Esau as examples. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so here we see that God's election, his choosing and his not choosing, his loving and his hating is not a result of human actions, good or bad. For Jacob and Esau had done nothing good or bad. They were still in their mother's womb. They hadn't been born. And yet God chose Jacob and he did not choose Esau before they were even born. Friends, it's a difficult truth. But I believe the Bible clearly teaches this truth. God is free to choose to love whomever he wills, and he is free to hate whomever he wills. In this way, his love is free and not determined by human actions. God is sovereign over all things, and that includes who he loves. He gets to pick who he loves and who he doesn't love. We see this throughout the scriptures. God chose to enter into a covenant with Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, who was a pagan at the time. And he did not choose any other pagans to enter into covenant with. Why? So that his purpose of election might continue. Then God chose Isaac, Abraham's son, and Jacob's father. But he did not choose Jacob's half-brother, Ishmael. God's decision was not based on Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob being better or bigger or greater or sweeter or kinder or tougher or nicer or more handsome. Nothing. The list goes on and there was nothing in any of these men that set them apart from any other men. They were not more righteous than any others. Election is based on God's will, not on our will. The Lord is free to choose us or to not choose us. He is free to love or to hate. Of course, this can lead to many questions. This is a difficult, but it is an important truth. And there are wonderful, sweet realities that come out of it that we'll end with. I also believe because it can be such a difficult truth, the Apostle Paul, anticipating some of these questions that come into mind, continues in Romans 9, and I'll just pick up right where we left off, addressing some of our questions. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So after using Jacob and Esau, now Paul points to another example of God's election. Pharaoh, whom God chose not to have mercy on or show compassion to. Now we can work through that passage and try and change it. Pharaoh was a real man in a real time. And we read there that God hardened his heart. Why? For his purpose. He could have shown mercy. He could have done it another way. He is free to do whatever he pleases, and yet he doesn't do it that way. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. For God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. Friends, this whomever includes you and me. 
And if you're a Christian, you've experienced this reality. God is the one who changed my heart. Even if you were saved at three, God did something in your heart. He chose to have mercy on you, though you might not even remember it. You might say, I was a Christian since grandma or great grandma uh, read the Jesus storybook Bible to me on her lap while I rocked in the, in the chair. The Lord did a work. He chose you. And then you chose him in response. My own testimony, not that this is the ultimate truth, it aligns with this. I worshiped, and I was a really good worship of this false trinity, sports, girls, and partying or drinking. That was my false triune God. And yes, I went to church like a good Lutheran goes to church. I affirmed some good theology. I knew that I was saved by grace, but I was far from God, and my whole life was proof of that. I was not looking for God. I did not want to choose God. And yet God did a surprising work. He chose me. And in a real moment, in real time, I experienced his mercy and his grace. Same gospel that I had heard for 20 years of my life, I heard and he changed me in that moment. He chose me and then I chose him. We don't deserve it. The doctrine of election, rightly understood, gives us a biblical view of just how sinful we humans really are. We are totally depraved. Yes, we could always be worse, but every single thing of us before God works in our life is marked by sin. We're born in sin and we choose to sin. That's the reality. We're not going to choose God because we're dead in our sin. We're slaves to sin. And so what does God He do he chooses us. We're deserving of God's judgment and he shows us instead his grace. And this view of God's election teaches us just how desperately reliant we are on God's sovereign grace. You and I don't just need a little bit of grace. We don't just need God to kind of be nice to us. We need him to pour out his sovereign, sweet, beautiful, life-changing, heart-beating, eye-opening, ears-hearing grace, his changing sovereign grace on us. That's what we need. And so this view of election, and this is what we teach, we understand that other churches, and you might even struggle or might disagree with this view of election, this is what we believe, this is what we teach in our membership class God is sovereign in salvation. God chooses us, and in response, we choose him. We make a choice, but it's because we see his greatness, his beauty, and he chooses us first. We don't deserve God's love. We are all sinners deserving of God's wrath. Jacob was, and so were you and I and every other Christian. If you're not a Christian, if you have not repented of your sins, your rebellion against God is ongoing, then you are only deserving of God's wrath. Unless you turn to Jesus, you will justly receive God's wrath. The Jews, hearing the Lord's answer to, how have you loved us, were reminded that God had indeed loved them. And how did he love them? What does God say in response to their objection? I chose you. I chose you. And he says that to every single Christian. You might think you chose him, and you did, but know this Christian, he chose you first. And that is a sweet and beautiful truth when you know that there is nothing in you that was deserving of being chosen of. 
that is all of grace, sovereign, beautiful, life-changing grace. Another part of God's answer, though, is found in God's judgment on Edom. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And what made them different from Israel was not that they were more deserving of God's judgment, because they weren't. Israel deserved God's judgment just as much as Edom did. Yes, Edom was sinful and wicked, but the very reason why the Lord sent the prophet Malachi to deliver his message to Israel was because they were sinful and wicked too. That's why we have the book of Malachi. Because Israel was in a season of wickedness and rebellion. They had wandered again from the Lord, broken the covenant. There was, and as we will see, serious and widespread sin among God's covenant people. What made Israel different from Edom is that God chose to love Israel. That's what made Israel special, God's election. And so because of Edom's sin, their pride, their idolatry, they would experience God's judgment, God's holy wrath. They would be destroyed. Not because Israel was better or Edom was worse, but because God chose Israel and God did not choose Edom. Now, some will say, this doesn't seem fair. He chose Jacob and not Esau. They weren't even born yet. He chooses this one and not that one. But friends, hear this, and this is so important. Grace, by definition, is not fair. Grace is God's unmerited, that is, his undeserved favor. You could say his unfair favor. If grace were fair, you and I could earn it. We could deserve it. We could go to God and say, look, I've cleaned up my life. Okay, I know I used to party three times a week. It's down to one. I don't binge drink anymore. I just drink socially. Uh, Look at this. I've I've started going to church again. I'm giving money to the church now. I've really cleaned up my life. So give me grace. Give me your unmerited, undeserved grace. Oh, wait, that's not grace. That's works. It's not fair. It's not. We don't want fair because you know what? would be fair for God to pour out his just wrath on every single one of us. Fair would be hell for all of us for all of eternity. And God would still be just and loving and kind and gracious. But he has determined in his sovereign will to show his grace and his mercy and his love in this way, saving some and not saving others. Yes, it is a difficult truth. Yes, I have, and many have, and some of you are, and maybe now even more, some of you will wrestle with this truth. And yet I believe it is good, and it is what the Bible teaches, and it has great fruit for you, Christian, at the end. Let's pick up from where I left off in Romans 9, because there the Apostle Paul, I believe, anticipating the question of fairness, writes, you will say to me then, Why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. 
God is God and we are not. He made everything and he made everyone. He has all rights over everyone. This is his will. This is his plan. It's revealed in scripture. Yes, it's hard. Not, not really, I don't think it's hard to wrap our minds around it because I think it's logical. I think it makes sense when you understand that salvation is only by grace, grace alone, that God gets all the glory. And I understand that others who disagree with me, whether you would call yourself an Arminian or whatever, would say, I, I would define these things differently. I get that. I really do believe, though, that something is lost when we don't affirm this truth. I'll, I'll, I'll end with it shortly, but I, I want you to have this in your mind. God is God. We are not. He can do with us as he pleases. He is just and he is good no matter what. And yet, he chooses to save some. It's not fair. It's grace. And this brings us to the Lord's promise in Malachi 1.5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So, so God begins with, I have loved you, my people. They say, uh, prove it, God. And he says, I'll prove it. I chose you, and I did not choose Edom. And you're going to see this. You're going to see these things with your own eyes. And in response, you're going to say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. These things will give you a bigger, a greater view of who I am, Israel. That's what God says. You're going to see it with your own eyes. And in response, you're going to say, great is the Lord. That should be our heart in response to God's election. Whoa, I see it. It's hard. There's some struggle there. I, I'm concerned about aunt or uncle or my sons. I'm concerned about this person, that person. I don't know how this all works out in the mystery of God's sovereign will, but I do know this. It's true. And it leads me to say, God, you are great. Because despite their waywardness, their sin, their doubt, the Lord promised Israel, whom he loved, not only that he loved them, but that they would see the Lord's judgment of Edom. God pours out his righteous wrath on the wicked in order to make known the riches of his glory to those whom he has chosen to love. And in response to this, Israel would say, great is the Lord. You see, a right understanding of God's election does not lead to spiritual pride or boasting. Israel was not to say, hey, look, hey, Edom, look at me. I'm chosen. You're not. Uh-huh. That, 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 no, that's not what God says is to be the response of his people. The response is, great is the Lord. Edom, great is the Lord. Not me. I'm not great because you know what? I, I deserve the judgment that awaits you. Great is the Lord. Understanding rightly the doctrine of election humbles us. Election teaches us Christians that we are not better or more deserving of God's love than others, even our own family members, but that God chose to love us. And we know this to be true because we know that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to atone for our sins. And that God sent, God's son came willingly to die in our place. He didn't deserve it, we did. And he did it out of, out of love for his own glory. Christian, God chose to love you despite who you were and what you've done. That's awesome. That's the truth. That truth. That's the fruit that comes from this doctrine of election. You cannot look inwards and say, you know what? I kind of am nice. I kind of am good. God needs someone like me in heaven. You look internally and you say, I was born a sinner and I cho chose to sin. And yet, despite my wickedness, my depravity, God saved me. In addressing this very truth to students training to be pastors, Charles Spurgeon put it well. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. 
And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. And so that is to be our heart's response to the doctrine of election, humility, and also worship. We are to say, church, like Israel was to say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel, beyond the border of America, beyond the border of Senegal, beyond the border of Brazil. Great is the Lord is our response to the doctrine of election. Because God's sovereignty and salvation, God's sovereign love leads us to praise, adore, and worship the Lord. We're humbled. We don't come to worship and say, you know what? I'll give you a little worship, God. We come to worship and we say, I will get on my knees. I will bow down in humility and praise because I know I don't deserve to be among your people. And yet you chose me. And so I will stand and praise you, God. Yes, it can be difficult to wrap our mind and especially our heart around the reality that God chooses some and does not choose others. I understand that. And again, I wrestled with this truth for quite some time. You may be wrestling with it today. However, what we see here in Malachi is that this truth of God's sovereign love, his election is important. It matters. It's the first part of the message that God gives to his wayward people. I hope you see the connection. Christian, when you are knee deep, forget that neck deep, forget that you feel like you're drowning in sin, that you have lost your salvation. Yes, you would say, I trust in Christ, but I'm such a wicked sinner that I've abandoned him, I've wandered. I've left his people long ago for years, decades. And you understand this truth, and this truth comes to mind. You will know that despite your sin, despite your lack of passion for God, your lack of worship, even the suffering and the consequences that you've endured because of your sin, God loves you. God loves you not because of what you have done or who you were or what you've become, but because he chooses to love you. That's awesome. That's what you need to hear this morning. God loves you. Let's pray. God, in light of this truth, this this message that you had for your people then and you have for your people today, may we be humbled and in awe and may we worship you in spirit and in truth, knowing that there was nothing in us, nothing that we have done since our salvation that has brought about your love. You simply and solely for your own glory and purposes chose to love us. And in response, we want to worship and praise you for the rest of our days. Lord, I do pray for those who might be struggling with this doctrine, that you would help them, that we as a church would be humble in our understanding of these truths and that we would be willing to sit down and walk through these truths with one another. (coughs) That we would be patient and kind, and yet we would not compromise. For these truths, I believe, are taught in your word, and they are good. You have given them to us. You have revealed them to us for your church's benefit, so that we would have assurance and strength and be encouraged even in our darkest of days. You have chosen to love us. Praise be to you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.